0: Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me tonight, I'm joined by Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? And we also welcome, I think for the first time, actually, uh, my good friend, freelance writer, J.P. Grant.
1: Yeah, it's about goddamn time, Rob. Thanks.
0: Yeah, well, you don't play a lot of strategy. Uh, You're what I I like to call, what our audience considers, uh, a poser. Um, (laughs) You're just... (laughs) Uh, you're, you're lucky that you happen to uh, have connected with your lovely wife through one of the greatest uh, RTS games of all time. This uh, is
1: true. This is very true.
0: And so we've been talking about this game for a couple months, and uh, Troy, I know you're always ready to talk about this game. Tonight we're going to be talking about uh, my favorite entry from the Age of Empire series, which is actually kind of an offshoot of the Age of Empire series, uh, Age of Mythology. Uh, which is a real-time strategy game that takes a lot from Age of Empires but transports it to basically a world where Norse, Egyptian, and uh, Greek myth are alive, well, and doing battle. Uh, so, JP, since this is your first time on the show, since you're a guest, I, I kind of want to start with you because you don't actually, you know, at least until recently, you've never played a great many strategy games. But this seems like one that really sort of clicked with you.
1: Oh, absolutely. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of sentimental value to this game, but we can tell that story at some other time. Yeah, you know, this is one of the first um, RTSs I think that I really got into. I had played Starcraft, of course, but this one really clicked for me, and I don't know if it was just the theme, if it was the presentation, or uh, the way that it was balanced between the three main factions, but uh, it just really, really fired on all cylinders for me, and I find myself going back to it and replaying Uh, the campaign replaying skirmishes, you know, uh, several times a year.
0: And, Troy, you're kind of on record as this is one of your all-time favorite RTSs. And is this your favorite ensemble strategy game?
2: Yeah, I would say it is. I mean, it's people ask what my favorite all-time RTS is. It really comes down to, you know, Age of Mythology or Rise of Nations. And the two came out, you know, within a year of each other. Um, And for a long time, I wavered back and forth. And really, it's an interesting... Comparison between the two—I mean, Rise of Nations and AOM—they uh, both take very, they're both similar in some ways. They both kind of are evolutions of the Age of Empires way of doing things, but they go in very different directions. Um, I mean, we've often called Rise of Nations the official strategy game of Three Moves Ahead for very good reasons, and I think I've come down on that as being a better RTS. Uh, For a lot of other reasons, we can do it at another very different time. But Age of Mythology sticks with me for a lot of really deep, sophisticated, amazing, sexy and weird reasons. I mean, it's really just one of these kind of special games that you don't see a lot of. Um, And it really pinged with me at a very special time. and it and, and really and it still resonates with me uh, because of the things that uh, JP talked about, the way that it has this balance between the factions and how different and unique they are. Um, and there's a, and it does a lot of things right that other RTSs really don't, and we'll get into those um, as we go through the show. I mean it really does stand out for me as one of the most perfectly balanced, I think it's I think it's almost better balanced than StarCraft Two, um, in some ways, which I think is, for example, a three faction um, RTS. I mean, it's 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 up in that level of a game that you really have to play and understand, because I think how deep and intricate uh, the balance goes.
0: So actually, I, I kind of wanted to. You know, talk about some of those like sexy and weird reasons you you just brought up, Troy. Because for me, I think one of the things I, I really enjoy about Age of Mythology is, uh, you know, really just just how imaginative it is. Just how just uh, how it, it sort of takes the you know basic gameplay of the Age of Empires series, which is very much like you know uh, build light infantry, build better infantry, you know, combined arms tactics, siege weapons, that sort of thing. But but here. Um, you know, just sort of retheming it and creating this, 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 uh, new, the, this, this new category of hero units and, uh, mythological units that are sort of, uh, driven by faith, uh, really adds this, uh, new dimension to the game, you know, in part just visually, I think just in terms of like flavor, uh, this is a much more exciting game to watch and, and play. And so that sort of engages me right there, but also I, I think the way faith operates in this game, uh, you know especially the the different ways it functions for for the three factions uh really creates you know an interesting panoply of different styles for each faction,
1: yeah, it really encourages that i i'm I'm glad you brought that up rob because the uh w- one of the things that I like about how the factions are designed is um, you know as Troy was saying earlier, how different they are and how they encourage these different play styles. so you've got uh, you're, you're Greeks who, uh, when you build temples, in order to gain favor, which is another resource just like food, gold, or wood, uh, you have to have a couple of your workers praying at the temple. So that's taking them off other tasks. Then with the Egyptians, which is one of the other factions, they can build these uh, statues that will gather favor over time, and then they become progressively more expensive, but they also gather you more favor. The one uh, that I think is really the, the coolest is the Norse, who only gather, uh, gather favor through battle. Um, and I think you gather favor regardless of whether you're getting your ass kicked. It just, you know, you have to be engaged in battle to gain favor. But that really encourages this aggressive play style, um, where if you're going to advance, you've got to go out there and kick some ass.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really, in many ways, I mean, the Greeks are kind of the, the starter civ in ancient mythology. I mean, it's really, they're your traditional in many ways, Age of Empire Civilization. You have... Everything's collected the normal way. And yes, you have hero units, which are kind of a special subset, which the other factions really kind of don't have. The Egyptians just have these priests running around doing goofy, stupid things. They don't really have hero units. And the uh, Norse have sort of hero units, but they're not named hero units where, like, Great superheroes. They're just things you build and they gain favor a little bit more quickly. So they're called hero units, but they're just super soldiers more than anything else. Uh, but the Greeks are kind of your traditional civilized, they're your traditional faction, uh, really. Um, and then but the Norse are this really weird thing. I mean, the, the Norse, they can't even really build farms. I mean, they have to go out and kill, fit. they have to carry this stupid wagon around and kill animals. And things in that. I mean, that's just, and also go out and slaughter stuff, which is great, because their explorer unit is an infantry soldier. And the infantry also build the buildings. So you have this really weird, the Norse are kind of the advanced civilization. They're like, at the if you can master, obviously you've mastered, you know, the Greeks and the Egyptians, okay, can you handle the Norse? Uh, they really require someone who's aggressive, and who can really think about, you know, the trade-offs and the costs. And it's, in many ways, I think this is one reason why I think it come down on Rise of Nations being a better game. I think it's easier to get into uh, than Age of Mythology. But Age of Mythology is kind of like this master class in having three factions that are so different, one of which is actually quite advanced to play. It's not easy to play the Norse well especially for a new player. But when you play them up against a good Norse player and a good Greek player, can play evenly against each other quite well. These are actually very balanced civilizations. Um, So it's not like, well, these are really hard to play, but hey, they're really, really great. No, they're hard to play, and they're deft, and it's a challenge. But yeah, anyone else can stand up against them if you know what you're doing. This is actually a really well-balanced, tight, organized system. And it's a beautiful, elegant thing to watch in, in action.
0: And and I love the way the... the the, the impact these different uh, faction mechanics have on the flow of the game. Like, the Norse player, if there's a Norse player in the game, it can't be a passive game. You're going, you know, w- you know both sides of this point are going to be engaged w- you know fr- from the start because the Norse player needs to be harvesting uh, that favor from the start, w- which means, you know, sending suicide squads out, you know, picking off workers, doing whatever they can to sort of raise hell. Almost uh, like
1: the Zerg in, in some ways.
0: Very much so, actually. Uh, they, 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 they're, they're very similar to the, the Starcraft To Zerg, especially just in how uh, sort of they they break a lot of RTS conventions uh, in in these really interesting ways. But then you've got the Greeks who, yeah, they are more basic. They sort of function more from like centralized bases almost. And you sort of build up, you know, it's it's the standard pyramid, right, where you sort of scaffold yourself up the tech tree. And the Norse don't really follow that pattern. And then you've got the Egyptians who you know, I think very true to, you know, sort of true to what we th- think about, you know, with the national identities, right? The Egyptians are are great builders. The the Egyptians are sort of, uh, you know, blinged out all the time. The Egyptians sort of cr- accrue favor just through, you know, building these sprawling bases with tons of tons of temples and monuments to the gods that sort of create these, like, you know, an Egyptian base looks almost more like this rambling city that sort of, you know, spreads across the map. A Norse base almost doesn't exist. The Norse are sort of scattered everywhere. And then the Greeks are sort of, you know, very in one location, you know, playing, you know, they can play this very basic game. And so having the interplay, just in the, the way the game flows across the map, and who has to protect what, and what circumstances, you know, they want to be fighting under, uh, creates these, you know, these really fascinating a- asymmetries that, uh, you know, sort of keep me coming back to the game, because, the, you know, it's there's so many different, uh, that you know, each time you each time you fire it up, you you're you, you have the possibility of a very different game uh, from your last one, a very different game from the last the one before that
1: right you know the other thing that I was going to throw in there too is when you know Troy was talking about all the the complexity that's in there and and rob how you're mentioning that? yeah that there are so many options and so many different potential branches you can take in a game the thing that strikes me about this game every time i come back to it and one of the reasons i keep coming back to it is as you said i'm kind of stupid like I it, strategy games are very difficult for me because i have such a tiny brain but this game does such a good job of communicating information in a very intuitive way um that i i there are tons of examples that i'm sure that both of you could list many more than i uh, of strategy games that are not uh, very good at telling you what's happening and what you need to know um and I, I think that they've they've done a great job in this game in distilling this down both in terms of the the interface and then just in terms of the the sort of uh, conventions um of of telling you what you need to know in order to formulate uh, your tactics
0: yeah, I, I tend to agree with that, but I'd actually love to hear some examples. Of, because one thing, one thing that you know, I, I will, I will say about this game is, you know, it's it's an older game, and so when I, when I when I fire it up, there's definitely a lot of things like, um, you know, the way tooltips are sort of used in a lot of modern strategy games. Not that you know, this is this is not quite there. It's got much more static interface than, than you see today. And yet, I agree with you that there's that there is a that there is a lot of intuition here. Uh, but but I'm curious how how you find it, that manifests itself.
1: Um, uh, well, I, I think there's, first of all, in terms of the resources, right? So you've got uh, four main resources, which are food, wood, gold, and then your favor or your god power or whatever you want to call it, right? Um, and, and it's very clear where all of those things exist um, in the world, how to gather them, what the bonuses are that allow you to collect them faster or collect more of them or, or what have you. Um and And then, from there, it's I think the economy the in-game economy of the game is. Uh Streamlined to such a degree is that you really do understand what the uh, what kind of resource investment you can make at any given time uh, and still come out okay. You know, do you put your uh, your resources into the armory where you're building up your soldiers' defense, um, or do you do you spend that on uh, you know upgrades to your buildings or so forth? So um, I I, th- I think a lot of it has to do with the design of the research and the teching up um and and when you i mean even in the interface when you actually uh progress to a new age so i think there's what four ages uh you start at one you progress all the way up to four uh you have to at each age you have to pick a new god that you're going to worship and in that little screen they give you a very clear indication of okay well if i pick dionysus i'm going to get this particular bonus if i pick hades i'm getting you know my soldiers will be reincarnated as ghosts when they die, and, and they'll still be able to fight for me. So there's a real uh, a good presentation of what your choices are at any given time.
2: And a lot to said also, I mean, as it comes to you know, teaching how to play the game, is that this has, to my mind, probably the single best story-based campaign of any real-time strategy game ever made. Um, both as far as teaching... Uh, the game all the way through, and also holds together as a story-based campaign. I mean, it has it's, it has three chapters. You start with the Greeks, and it teaches you the Greeks. Then it's the Egyptians; it teaches you the Egyptians, and the Norse. Then it teaches you the Norse, and leads to this huge climax at the end. And all the way through, it feels completely natural. You don't feel like you're being held back from using certain new toys or new tools. Everything's worked in quite nicely and quite tightly. And it's really a brilliant little. I mean, we've complained a lot on this show about uh, how story based campaigns in RTSs are almost all the time just really lame ass tutorials. Uh, this is a tutorial, but it's not a lame ass one. It actually is really good at teaching the basics for much, I mean, basic RTS stuff, like that everyone's tired of, you know. Left, select, left click to select, right click. Click to move, stupid idiot things that, you know, we take for granted, but some people need to learn. But also does teach you things like, okay, you might want to put some guys on gold here now because you're going to need some gold. Um, So as far as teaching you things in crisis situations, because these missions are actually sometimes quite difficult. These are not always – these aren't walk-through-the-park scenarios where the AI is always going to sit back and wait for you to come to it. Um, especially as you get through each chapter, things get actually quite tough and quite hairy, um, and you can lose them if you're not paying attention. So it's there are quite a few nice little teaching tools if you get into a story-based campaign. Now, the thing is, a lot of people avoid those for very, 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 very good reasons. Um, but the, the game itself, I mean, I mean JP is right that there are a lot of great cues. I think the visual cues are the big thing, um, in aom and this is one reason one way it's better than age of empires 3 is the visual cues of what type of unit is this what is this unit doing um what what action is happening right now just the differences of scale the differences of size the dramatic at the the drama of explosions and lightning um seeing cool things happen on your screen makes you want to figure out the way to make those cool things happen again. And I think that is one of the big draws of Age of Mythology. And it makes you want to excel to push you to make those things happen and make those things happen sooner and better and more often.
1: Yeah, one of the things I was... I'm glad you brought up the visual cues, Troy, because one of the things I was going to mention is the audio cues in this game. I, I mm-hmm. think are some of the best that that I've encountered... Um, you know, maybe, maybe StarCraft is, is the best comparison in terms of um, how well implemented it is. But it, just in terms of, you know, you're talking about how do I know which, which type of unit I'm selecting. Well, they all have these different barks, and it's all this sort of made-up fantasy language, that it kind of gives you an indication, okay, this is one of my infantry here that I'm selecting. And they do this really nice thing with the dynamic cues in the music that it's got this, the you know, the soundtrack is beautifully designed, by the way. It's just perfect for sort of the rhythm of play as you're building up your base and researching tech and exploring. But then as you get into conflict, it kind of gears up and there's this theme that comes in that's sort of like your battle theme that will alert you, you know, let's say you're paying attention on gathering wood at your base. You're not even thinking about those guys that you sent off to that other island. Well, the queue comes in and alerts you right away. Uh, yeah, you better get your ass over there and figure it out. Um, So I I think sound works really, really well in this game.
2: The ensemble's always been very good with the sound cues. They went the mini map cues. I've always been excellent. Um, and I think AOM takes those to left to a very good level.
0: There's there's a really fine line to walk with, with those because you know you want to you want the mind to register them, but you don't want them to be so insistent that they take the player away from whatever he or she is doing. And right, a lot right. of games sort of like they will sort of jump up and down, like waving their arms, being like, "One of your workers is idle," and it could be, you know, what like I don't care right now I'm in the middle of fight. Like just you know, leave me the hell alone and let me. Let me do my job. So this 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 does a very good job of just sort of like pinging you in all the right ways, where you're like, okay, you know, that's going on the you know mental checklist, the stuff to take care of in a minute uh, once I'm done my current thing. The the other thing that. I think is really fantastic is sort of the unit design where you have these, you know, really sort of expressive um expressive art and animation really that says a lot about what this unit is about. You know, like you got, you know, if you've got like a big beefcakey looking like infantryman or something, you got a pretty good idea that like this is a, you know, heavily armored meat shield. And uh you know, the myth units, uh, you know, are even are, you know, kind of even more so where you've got uh uh you know, what what uh my girlfriend and I call the laser crocodile the uh, the uh, that the, the Egyptians have uh, when they worship Hathor, which is basically you know it's a crocodile that you know is shooting like you know beams of light, and uh, it, you know it's this it's this sort of super powerful uh, you know support unit that you know you, you see it and then you you know see how much more effective it looks when you've got like five of them, and you're like okay so this is basically you know this is this is your Katusha rocket. You know, it has that same sort of, like, you know, you see this unit in action, and you're immediately like, okay, I know how I want to use this one.
2: I actually used the term laser crocodile in a chat with a friend earlier tonight when describing Asian mythology. Here are are people with swords, and hydras, and cyclops, and laser crocodiles, and Hercules, and Valkyries, oh, and Zeus, and Thor, have fun. And that's kind of Asian mythology, you know, in a nutshell right there.
1: Yeah, it almost makes other real-time strategy games that are not set in a bizarre mythical universe really disappointing. Like, what do you mean <laughs> I can't have a laser crocodile?
0: I actually think that's a that's a really good point. In fact, and I think the Age of Empires series at times, uh, you know, for me personally, at least, sort of suffered from I think maybe being a little too grounded at times, where, you know, a little too conservative about you know here's infantry type A and then slightly different infantry type B, and yeah, they all have a gameplay purpose and everything, but you know, it was nothing that sort of got you fired up to actually you know play with the it's the cool toys thing, right? It's uh, there weren't you know a lot of Age of Uh, empires games as cool as they could look when you were sort of zoomed out and looking over an entire battlefield with all those, you know, buildings and all the animations, you know, triggering at once. Um, There was, there was nothing, there's nothing that really like matches the sort of cool factor that you find in age of mythology when basically you've got, you know, on one, you know, in the center, you've got a major like conventional battle heating up, but then also you've got like, you know, Jason Hercules waiting in there while, you know, some sort of terrifying, you know, Viking, you know, demigod is charging forward with a, you know, double-bladed axe, that's just really, that's just really cool. And it's just something that immediately, like you said, Troy, immediately makes me think like, oh man, I just want to make, you know, how do I make that happen? I want to make it happen more. Uh, and and so I, I think it's sort of, you know, it, it both helps you learn the game, but it also encourages you to want to learn the game in a way that I think, you know, some more uh, grounded RTSs sometimes struggle to do.
2: I mean, I think one of the great, I mean, it's clear that a lot of the game, especially you know the Greek side of it. I think they clearly started with the Greeks and then moved from there. Yeah, they have this, this this you know 1950s Ray Harryhausen movie feel to them. Yes. Uh, oh yeah, you, yeah, for sure. Where you have you know these huge monsters standing among humans, and this is just part of life. You know, you run into them and you got to fight them off. And this, so, and even I mean, the Cyclops even kind of moves like a Harryhausen creature. You know, and he, I love it when he grabs the Egyptian elephant and throws oh, yeah, him into yeah. and throws him into trees, and the trees fall. I mean, that's just perfect. Um, this is, it it so, looks like
1: a claymation uh, scene come to life. It's absolutely, really-
2: yeah. So you can see. So I think they kind of started with the Greeks and then moved out from there. So I mean, if you, so, if you, if you, if you're like me and you actually saw, you know, watch those movies like Saturday afternoons, uh, you know, in high school or college, then it's like, well, this is. Then there's I think kind of a pull to that, and that's in many ways kind of, or you know, you watch the Thirteenth Warrior. If you like the Thirteenth Warrior, Antonio Banderas fighting ghosts with his Viking warriors, you know, we're off to Valhalla, let's go kill some demons, or whatever they were hunting for. Uh, I forget what he was killing in that movie, because it was just so hilarious. Uh, so there's this stuff, but if you, so if you like, you know, B-movie stuff, it's kind of, it, it's it's a, it's a B-movie RTS, actually, if you think yeah, about that's it. that's a good it, to put it. It, I mean, it's a, it's a AAA game, and it's got AAA qualities, and AAA design, but it's got this B-movie quality to it. Whereas I think a lot of the Age of Empires games, I mean, they, they really are cartoons. I mean, they're Age of em- the, all the Age of Empires are history cartoons. The first one, especially, is a cartoon. And that's not, not a bad thing, I love cartoons. Cartoons are good things. But they are just, you know, here, 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 here's a catapult and some soldiers, let's go whack some things. Um, there isn't really a sensibility to them. There's no real cohesion. It's just a bunch of dudes banging into each other. Now you can have great design in there, and you can have great game in there. I'm not saying these are bad games. I mean, I'm Everyone think that I don't like the Age of Empires games. I like them very much. I like the first one. I like Age of Empires three. I'm always, you know, not sure what I think about Age of Kings. I'm one of the people who's not always who's always on the edge of Age of Kings, which makes me a weirdo. But so I love the Age of Empires games. I don't, I don't want anybody, you know, posting this on a forum saying, "Oh, he hates the Age of Empires." I don't. But those are games that don't quite have this, don't have kind of a worldview. And I think this, I think Age of Mythology has kind of a worldview, which is weird because it's not a world. This is an entirely fictional, ahistorical, anachronistic, bizarro place. But it has a sensibility and it has a vision um, that's bigger than its design. Uh, and I think that makes, I think that's why we're drawn to it in a way. It's, it pulls us in like a B-movie does.
0: Do you think part of that might be that, you know, because it's kind of unmoored from history... you know, you're, you're you're dealing with these sort of fantastical conceptions of these civilizations, and so in some ways, the you know the, it's a game that's very comfortable about uh, making definitive statements about what these fantasy uh, nations are about in a way that might be a little more complicated when you're trying to boil down, uh, you know, a bunch of medieval kingdoms that actually existed and actually you know are fairly well documented, and that ultimately you know in many ways sort of adopted evolved along similar lines where here you can basically say there is no convergence the the you know you know here you know how do we picture the Norse we picture them you know drinking in longhouses, you know riding their dragon ships around and just like beating the shit out of other people let's make a game where that's the entire faction that's all they do and I kind of feel like it that becomes a little more complicated when you say like okay let's do the Scandinavians and they just get wasted and they go beat the shit out of people but it's very easy to say that about the Norse
2: yeah, I don't think it's quite that. I mean, Age of Mythology kind of stands out, and it's important for the step in Age of Empires III, if you think about it, because the Age of Empires I and Age of Kings, really all the factions were kind of interchangeable, except they had little bonuses here and there. Now, Age of Kings introduced unique units. Which was an advantage, but if you look at something like, I mean, look up uh, the Minoans, like in Age of Empires, they just looked like every other civilization. Just they had better archers and cheaper ships. And that's what the Minoans were. That's it. Um, so it's not like they were... So there wasn't even real much of an effort to define them beyond a you know, very clear. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure the Minoans are even famous for their archers. Um, and I think once they're just their composite archers actually the Minoans had, you know, great sk- had advantages for in that game. I'm not even sure the Minoans had composite archers. I don't
0: know. I don't think the Minoans are not famous for shit. The Minoans are famous for a couple like cryptic ruins in the Mediterranean, but like they're they're fam-
2: they're, they're famous for their ships. They're famous for boats and this nautical Arab empire, great. The nautical trade empire and established and which eventually got killed in a tidal wave, but it, they ended up collapsing, whatever. Those were the Minoans were. Um and then they vanished. But but you know, we look at all of their civilization. Who, who the hell are the Shang? Who cares who the Shang are? What are the Shang special skills? Well, they're Chinese. Let's give them more people, right? So, so there's just not even this great effort uh, to define them or make them historical. Uh, so I don't think that. So I think that in many ways, Age of Empires and its efforts to really distinguish uh, the cultures, really make the English and the Germans and the Dutch. Play quite differently and have quite unique attributes, unique units, uh, one or two unique powers that made them really stand out. Is a debt to Age of Mythology, and of course, Age of Mythology in some ways comes at, is a, pays a debt to Starcraft, because Starcraft really introduced, was, a, a, was in, in sort of introduced that to RTSs in, in in general. But you know, Age of Mythology shows you know what you can actually make these things quasi-historical and really unique and really special. Now once you have 8 or 10 of these it makes it hard. You can't make 8 or 10 really wacky crazy civilizations. Uh, you're kind of limited there before it starts getting really kind of weird. Once if they were to do like five I think it would have been probably five would have been a bit much. Uh but, but so I'm not sure why they this one kind of stands out. I major Asian Empires, I like three. I really like, and I think it was a, the way that the factions do stand out, uh, different distinction does is kind of a lesson learned from Asian mythology. But Asian mythology, I think, is it's exclamation point I think in ensemble's history. That um, does I think that quite the attention it deserves.
1: So on that point of diluting uh the uniqueness of the different factions. Did you guys play the Titans expansion?
0: Yeah. So I never did, but that's mostly because when I came to the game, uh Troy did a pretty thorough job of turning me off of it because he was always sort of adamant that uh it's kind of a case study in how to how how expansion can kind of uh wreck a base game if you don't get it right. So I I have to uh, you know, sort of plead the fifth here. Okay, I'm, I'm curious I,
2: about that, yeah. I, I want to get to that in a bit. Before we can get on to the expansion, why I think went wrong, I think we have to talk about probably the biggest thing that Age of Myth mythology added or introduced. Um, they were the first ones to do it, probably the first really, really big game to do it, and that is the whole God Power. The God Powers, yeah. Which I can't think of any RTS before that that really made the God Powers so central to the game. Um Here's, if you haven't played with age of mythology, the idea is in each age you choose a god to worship. Um, you have a starting god, and each god has a has a power, a magic power you can cast. And this can be something kind of lame, like Zeus's thunderbolt, which can just kill a unit uh, or a hero or what have you, or something pretty amazing, as uh, a Ragnarok power, which just brings everything, just turns everything into pretty much Death. Uh, it's a. It's pretty nasty. Uh, they're all. All the gods have these little weird. There are plagues and all the usual stuff gods like to do. Um, and these are. This is actually could could be game turning. Um, they're uh, Apollo. If you're the Greeks and you're following Apollo and you're getting your ass kicked, you can. Cast the Apollo power, which is a ceasefire, or is that or is that Hermes? It's Apollo or Hermes. It's one of them. Uh, But there's a there's a ceasefire power, and so for a a minute or or so, no one can hit you. No one can attack you, and that can be enough time for you to get a bunch of soldiers out, or to rally your troops, or to get your villagers in a freaking tower. Whatever you've got to do to protect yourself from the attack that's coming. and that's uh, so. These are, could be really kind of important. Uh, the 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 meteor, egyptians have this have have a, a meteor power. You can call down a meteor, and that can you send that ahead of a siege, and you're 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 golden. Um, but if your siege f- fails before you. If you waste that, you're toast. So, but these can actually be these can be game changing used properly. Used improperly, they're just a total waste. a thing that you can only use them once. So these are so it has a, a coin burning in your pocket type thing. Whereas, my God, if I don't use this now, when will I use it? But what if I waste it? Um, which is kind of one of the... I, I love that feeling in a strategy game where I have to use it because this is an RTS. And I know it's going to be over in 40 minutes, but I don't know when I should be using it. Um, so I, I, I think the god powers are this, this wild card thing that make Age of Mythology. I really love them.
0: Well, and I, I don't think you can discuss the god powers in isolation from what you brought up earlier, JP, about the way sort of with each, you know, you know with, with each advance into a new era, you are picking a new patron god to sort of, like, add on to your sieve. And so really, you can say there are three basic factions in this game, but actually each one has these really distinctive builds because, you know, you, exactly. at, each, at, each tri- at each tier, uh, and, and what, so you're going to make a choice three times? Is right. that it? Two, yeah. three, and four. Yep. Yeah. So at each tier, you're choosing between two, go- uh, two gods. And you and you and you have a, have a choice to, to begin with. Right, right, right. You have your choice between yeah. So the so yeah, when you pick your faction, you pick between the big three of whatever that pantheon is, and then from each tier up, you're picking two gods who have really distinctive patterns. Like you will never like if you do not pick, you know, a certain god, you will never see her units in your in your arsenal. You will never have access to those. And there will be bonuses and buffs and, you know, new technologies that unlock depending on which gods you pick. And so this is where you know in addition to the straight up you know god powers you know called down from heaven you also have these these really fascinating questions of build uh yep. for four-year civilizations right. very um yep. rpg like where how are you going to spec out your civ and how are you going to take advantage of the choices you made and minimize the weaknesses from the roads you didn't take
2: and then you throw relics under there uh that you can find along the way um and the whole if you which are these little treasures? I mean, uh, the Age games have always had these stupid little treasures you can find, and usually they're a victory condition thing. But in Age of mythology, they're little perks uh, that you have for your civilization. Like, hey, your archers now do more damage, which is great if you've got an archer god. If you don't have an archer god, that might not be that important. If you're building a whole lot of infantry, but, you know, maybe your opponent has a lot of archers. So you want to keep him or her away from those archers. So, they have this, so there's this other metagame on top of that um, once you find those things that are out there. Because only a hero can bring those back. Um, so your explorer can find them, but only a hero can retrieve the, 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 the artifacts and the relics. And so they're you can not, have this, I, I was just going
1: to say, they're not safe. Even when you get that, yeah. you can bring them back to your temple. But if your temple gets raised, the opponent's hero can steal that, and then guess what? That's their bonus now.
2: So it's this, so there's, so there's, I mean, that's not a, a huge part of the game, but it's actually quite nice to know what relics the other person has. Um, because that can change in small ways, you know, what makes sense for you to build.
0: Well, and these are things that reward repeated play and repeated experience. So you're getting, you know, when you when, as you start to know what the relics are, when you see somebody, you know, has just collected such and such a relic, you know, something that's going to give their units a slightly faster march speed or something. Now you know you're dealing, you know, now you know what you're dealing with and what you sort of need to be guarding against. When you see what god they pick on their ne- next next step step up the tech tree, you know, as you know more about this game, you start to think, okay, so you know, here's what they're able to start bringing, you know, bringing up against me. You know, here come here come the scorpions, uh, you know. Here come the Valkyries. And so you start, you know, preparing for that eventuality. And then you start sort of counter building against them. And so this is, you know, I mean, this is really the lifeblood of RTSs and especially like competitive RTSs where you know there's the, the, the you know there's the basic question of you know how do you play and what are the broad identities of the, of the main factions but then there's these you know the 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 ebb, the ebb and flow between uh you know uh, you know active decision making and reactive decision making uh based on what you see other players doing and this is a game that really sort of brings that together really beautifully uh and and really in 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 such a way that you know each, each civilization each faction doesn't just have you know one or two end games they're building Towards, uh, they have like you know eight different end games potentially mm-hmm. they can you know they can mm-hmm. build towards.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I mean knowing that you know for you do the Valkyrie example. Hey, I need spearmen now, uh, especially because the Valkyries can heal. They aren't just damage dealing units; they're healing units. So you got to take those things out. So now you have got to invest in spear units. Well, if I'm playing the Egyptians, then I'm building a lot of spears. So I don't have a lot of spear monsters to counter that. Uh, so it's really. Yeah, I mean, knowing which gods your opponent has chosen, or is, and what their initial god is, because like you say, you know, there's there's this tree on the way down. If I choose Zeus, that means there's there are like th- that means there are three gods down the tree that like that are just taken off that I cannot pick because they are not uh, on Zeus's tree. Uh, whereas Poseidon, those gods would be there, and three others would be off. So it's really a fascinating little mix. All the way through, um, same with you know Osiris and Isis, and I think, well, who's the other Egyptian starting god. Ra- Ra. Ra, Ra. So it's yeah. Yeah,
0: I watched Stargate.
2: Yeah, it's, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, it, it's Ra and it's Isis, Ra and Osiris. That, that's on record now. No, Rob, Osir- Os- just so you know. Yeah, that, I'm I'm ashamed of no Stargate person on this show. Uh, no, I think Osiris is Osiris is uh, is one of the third age, one of the fourth age gods. Uh, but anyway, so there's, but so you have these little. Dramas playing out, um, uh, and you can you can sort of anticipate, you know, especially if you're playing the same person over and over again, and you know what they like. Hey, this person really likes Osiris's mummies, and uh, you don't get a whole lot of mummies coming at you, um, or whatever whoever builds the mummies. The Egyptians really love their undead units.
1: Yeah. So just going back to what Rob was saying earlier about this being a, a really you know good competitive RTS. Um, I just want to say, and I, I hope you guys have had the same experience, this is a freaking fantastic co-op game. Um, yeah. I, I kind of owe my marriage to this game, so it, it obviously holds a special place in my heart, um, but... It, you know my when when uh... several years ago when i was uh... teaching in buffalo where i'm from and uh... my wife was here in boston prior to us uh... being married um, she had you know we would fly back and forth uh... every month or, or whatever and uh... It, it, at one point, we were playing this game uh, on my computer, and she she really got into it. And I thought, wow, this is something special. So, we ended up finding her a copy, and then when she got back to Boston, uh, then she installed it, and we would we would play together. And um, she just took to it um, and, and loved doing the comp stomp. And um, I, you know, just this afternoon, we were playing together. Um, She also, by the way, insists that uh, when we play, it's domination or nothing. Because building wonders to win is, quote, bullshit. Uh, She is right. She's she's pretty hardcore on that. Uh, Oh, and titans, by the way, are also, quote, bullshit. So, uh, uh, but I I will say, you know, I think this this is really a a great cooperative game as well as uh, a competitive game.
0: I, I would agree with that. I, I do think it runs into the trouble of uh, eventually the skirmish AI just can't keep pace with it. And that's well, that's true. Yeah. That's the frustration is that, you know, for, for a while there, um, you know, my girlfriend and I were playing this, you know, I would say, you know, a couple hours every day on vacation. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's fantastic. It is, it is a great co-op game, especially because, yeah, the team dynamics, uh, you know, all those choices that we just mentioned a moment ago, now put those together with a partner. Uh, and, and sort of figure out each other exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you get so sort of these fascinating team compositions now uh, that are you know they're possible uh, much more so than in other RTSs where it's just like you know everyone's gonna be showing up with the same basic set of units. Now you get you know all these choices how to best to uh, you know build off of what he, what the other is doing. But the problem is. Uh, you know the you know like a lot of skirmish ai there's you know some of them are tuned for early rushes and some just build a lot but you know one thing most rts ais have never really mastered is uh you know sort of mid to late game aggression you know when to go all in and you know the the solution that i think a lot of ais uh, end up taking and uh, this is no exception is they end up doing like penny packet attacks for much of the game and so it becomes eventually if you you know you write out the early phase of the game then it's you know basically down to a late game cleanup after the map is largely mined out. That's mm-hmm. a little disappointing. Mm-hmm. I do wish this uh, had a bit of. What's happened with uh, Kohan uh, since, it's, since it was released, where basically that community created a raft of new AIs for Kohan that you know, are really take no prisoners and you know, kind of infinitely extended the game. Because yeah, it's hard to get a multiplayer game of Kohan going these days, but it's very easy now to find just an absolutely you know, terrifying AI to play. And I wish I had that same option in uh, Age Mythology.
2: I mean, another thing that, I mean, with co-op, this is a game, this is the, was the first ensemble game, probably the only ensemble game, except for uh, their their console Halo RTS, that has, you know, fixed uh, city centers.
1: Yeah, that's right. The, uh, what um, do we call them, settlements?
2: Settlements, yeah. I mean, this is a place where you build your town center wherever you want, and then work out from there. You have to find a settlement, and you can only build from there. That's where you increase your population the most. Most of the resources are scattered around those. You have to reach at level three, I think, uh, before you can build there. Uh, so you have, so there's this whole land rush uh, thing. So things get a little bit crowded on a certain size map, you know, the co-op and dividing uh, the territory. Uh, if, so it requires a little bit of extra communication, which you can really only do with people you love.
1: <laughs> yeah, it it does require a, a good amount of uh, healthy communication. Did you it, it, just thinking of this now? It brought to mind um, there was a Star Wars RTS couple of games called I want to say Galactic Battlegrounds, Galaxy something like at that. War. No, 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 no. It was. It, it, I want to say it was called. It was either Galactic Battlegrounds or Galactic Gal- Battlefront or Galactic Cattle or something. I'm not. I, anyway, it was. It it, it was almost an exact clone of Age of Mythology, in terms of the resources you were collecting and the building settlements and so forth. Uh It it was around the same time.
0: No, I just looked it up, and I mean, the visual motif is is pretty much the same. Well, it's from Ensemble. Oh, is it really?
1: I didn't even realize it was the same studio.
0: LucasArts Ensemble Studios, uh, released in November 2001, so it actually predates. Oh, it predates it. it Okay, so Age of of mythology. Mythology.
1: Is then a refinement
0: on that formula? It's I didn't play it. Troy, uh, Troy, do you play this? what, what is it again? Star, Star, Star Wars Galactic, Galactic Battlegrounds.
2: No, I did not. I heard of it, but didn't, It kind of like passed me by because he wants is... to play. because he wants to play a Star Wars game thats not that is X-wing or Tie Fighter.
0: Well, <laughs> for real, but yeah. So so you 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 played it. You played it, JP, and and so it actually sort of used a lot of the same mechanics.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um it, I would say that Age of Mythology, I mean it's interesting. I I thought that the Star Wars one was was uh after Age of Mythology, but um I thinking about it now, I can see that Age of Mythology definitely represents a sort of refinement on some of the rough edges in the Star Wars games. Um it, you know, you have the same uh type of resources. I can't recall. I don't think uh, I'm going to have to look it up, but uh, I, I can't recall if you had to age up in the same way, you know, go to the next technology level or whatever they called it. Uh, but they did have a really solid campaign, um, a good mix of units and factions that countered each other very well. Uh, I'm almost certain there were no god powers or anything analogous to that. Um, but, it, but you did have very much the same kind of formula and the same really precise execution of the visual and auditory cues
2: gun guns this is gun guns what the hell screw this
0: gun gun yeah exactly so it's like <laughs> yeah, oh there shit there's Naboo fighters it, well so. screw that but yeah, so i'm seeing a review from tom check here uh on GameSpot. Uh, he gave it an 8.2 he really liked it yeah that was young tom check when he still liked things when he liked games <laughs> yeah uh yeah i'm a little i'm a little stunned actually this totally went by me. well actually this is this came out right in like the start of my disillusionment with Star Wars uh, like tie tie in pro- products, because around this time Lucas Arts had basically put a gun to the head of its entire gaming division and uh, killed it mm-hmm. uh, with its with its Phantom Menace tie in games, which were just universally you know trash. And that was really the end of uh, old Lucas Arts. And so at this point, you know, every like at this point, the Star Wars brand I would say was already damaged. I had no idea that Ensemble had made this.
1: But it explains a lot about uh, how how they've uh, they, they managed to improve on it. And actually, thinking of it now, I, I think they probably simplified a little bit with Age of Mythology, which is which is often a good thing, uh, because as I, as I recall in the Star Wars games, there was a, a bit more to keep track of in terms of. Um, you know, they had a system that was sort of like the uh, pylons for the Protoss, mm-hmm. where you had to power your buildings and so forth, and and that just felt very tacked on. Um, so there were little refinements that I think they made to the formula, uh, in addition to making the factions uh, much more feel much more different than each other. But that was still, those Star Wars games were were actually pretty darn good. It was the one property where I thought I don't want to just hurt everything that's alive by seeing this Jar Jar thing in front of me
0: real quick uh before we get on to the titans expansion because because i I know that troy has a lot to say about that Mm -hmm. uh real quick can you guys pitch me on the uh single player campaign because i i I will admit i i am i am the person who basically refuses to play single player uh rts campaigns i don't even think you know this is heresy i don't even think uh company of heroes campaign is really that fantastic uh so i'm curious you know what makes age of mythologies uh special
1: Troy, you want to take this one?
2: Um, I mean, maybe it's me. Something to say this. Um, I think it's what makes it work. Am I told about how it works through? Uh, as a, how it works as a tutorial for all the factions. That's pretty obvious. And the, you know, it has three chapters, and that's not unusual. A lot of, a lot of RTSs have the three chapter thing. You know, Rise of Legends, for example, has the three chapters uh, for each faction in its campaign, and it's not a very good campaign. Um, Age of Empires III, uh, also a very terrible campaign. And it has uh, the chapters for its factions, or for a few of the factions at least. But I think what makes Age of Mythologies work is it is very true to its theme. Um, it It is a myth. It is a story about a hero, about someone from Atlantis who kind of achieves godhood, who achieves great things in a quest to save his people. Who defeats, who travels around the world, achieves, defeats great monsters, meets other heroes along the way, you know, fights side by side with, it's, you know, it's anachronistic, mythologically speaking, you know, fighting side by side with Hercules and then going to the Trojan War and then, you know, fighting against ancient Egyptians uh, and then fighting side by side with Vikings. But, you know, it's myths and this is kind of the world we're in. But it is a myth. and it's kind of, it's kind of like a Kevin Sorbo Hercules type thing, <laughs> yeah. But not as cheesy. And I think the fact that as B movie as the entire game is in the way it looks, it takes its weird setting as seriously as a good B movie does. And I think that's why the campaign works. Um, yeah, you'll have cheesy, lame-ass dialogue and stupid puns and some comic relief here and there. But the hero himself and the quest he's on and how this works, it actually works as a story, which you never see in an RTS campaign. You never see it as the stories work all the way through. Um, they're always generally the same. So that so, so that in itself uh, recommends it. Um, now, the scenarios themselves are actually sometimes quite interesting. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. very rarely are, I'm not like I not, not say they never, but they very rarely have this, well, there's only one way you can do this. So uh, until you find the way to do this, we're not going to let you do it. Um, so it does leave options for you to find alternate paths to complete the quest. It's not going to say, you can't do this, or there's only one road up to that wall. Uh, there, If you can find another way to do it and it's within the tools the game gives you, so long as you meet the conditions and you get all the flags turning blue or what have you, then it works. Um, and that's what makes it a, a game and not a puzzle, uh, which is some, a distinction we've made many times on the show. So the scenarios themselves work like that. And the final Climactic battle—it's just amazing. It's really just this huge, sprawling. I—I I mean, I'm going to use the word. I hate use. I hate using the word epic when it doesn't fit. But this is epic because it is actually an epic. It is a story of a great hero and all that. So it culminates in an, a battle fitting of an epic. You have soldiers from a bunch of different factions fighting side by side, and you're building them all to take down you know, this titan that wants to take over the world. And it's a hard battle, and you're racing against the clock, and, you know, you have have to finish it. You have to win. And it's really... I I think... But I really think it's the, the way that the story works and how the scenarios fit within the story, how he travels to each place for a good story myth related reason kind of a labors of hercules type thing you have to defeat this thing and to do it oh my god you have to find this extra watchma thingy but that's buried in egypt where his minions already are so he has to prove himself in egypt all over again after proving himself in greece so you have this because he's not known as a hero in egypt So, yeah, you're learning the Egyptians. I I really think it works as a story and as a series of scenarios that build themselves up to this amazing climax. I'm I'm, I'm probably overselling it (laughs) because I haven't played it in a long time. But remember, this is against a very, 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 very low bar for story-based real-time strategy campaigns. Um, I'm with you, Rob. I'm not huge in the Company of Heroes one either. Um, I think it's kind of too consciously a war movie and the game itself I think is a much better war movie uh than the campaign is. Yeah, I I, I recommend it. I think as a as something as a, a story to pay attention to. If you want to do an RTS story, that's the kind of thing you should be looking at, not this not a bunch of cutscenes, like in StarCraft 2.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that Troy stated that very, very well. And the the thing that uh, I just would want to comment on in terms of the story and and the whole B movie aesthetic of it is, and I'm going to come back to Stargate, Rob, because you're not going to live that down. But yeah. Stargate
0: is it, well, him. What... I don't watch the show. That's some nerd shit. Oh jeez. Saw the movie.
1: All right. Yeah. Okay. Now we get
0: that. Uh.
1: It, well. Um, <clears throat> not that i have ever watched the show but as i understand it the show like the kevin sorbo hercules or anything is is kind of cheesy but it it takes itself seriously enough that if you start to allow yourself to sort of let your guard go down and just get into it it is incredibly enjoyable and you actually start to care a little bit now the, the thing that, that troy had mentioned earlier that i want to highlight is in terms of the scenario design within the campaign it's Really varied, and not just by okay. Now we're here in Egypt. It's okay. Now we're here in Egypt, and it's going to throw a new test at you every scenario to make sure that you're you're making full use of all the capabilities and all the units that this particular faction is going to offer you. So you know y- you certainly can win the scenario with you know just cavalry or or what have you, but um, this but unless you are. Experimenting with the siege weapons, you're going to have a tough run of it. So, I I think what the campaign adds in terms of uh, the value is that by the time you come back to the skirmishes, you are so much more prepared for uh, any variety of tactics that uh, gets thrown at you. And you're more willing to experiment, which I think for a game like this, with so much, you know, so many fun and crazy and over-the-top uh, units uh, and and powers, experimentation is where it's at. I mean, like, what's the point of having a, a, a friggin' jellyfish that shoots lightning unless you're using it? So uh, so I really enjoyed that about the campaign. The the,
2: the, the the My favorite maps, I think, are the the maps that have water on them, like the islands. And, I don't just love mm-hmm. what RTS is. Usually then it's just terrible. Uh, any... RTS that has water, because forget it. But you do have, because you have some really neat monsters to play with. Um, you have, you know, the phoenix, you know, that's just a nice scout that cast that can burn things. You have krakens that can haul um, ships to their death. You have scyllas that can eat things. It's really, and, I'm, and there's you have rocks that can just, that are flying transports uh, so you don't have to build boats; you can just flood them over if you don't have sea supremacy. Uh, so it's just a really neat, and it's and the, you're right. There's this flexibility in the game itself um, that a lot of that really in any map you can kind of crack in a certain way. And the, you're right; the campaign does encourage you uh, to through its development of challenges to. I mean, but but it's not in a puzzle type way where well you have to
0: do this right, with right. your a new buy or else it doesn't count. Some something else about uh, Age of Mythology and maybe actually uh, the Age of Empires series more broadly, but one thing I do appreciate about it, in part because I'm someone who uh, you know frankly has always sort of struggled with RTSs, is that this is not really a rush RTS. Uh, you know, the the early no, game defense not. is very, very strong. You can take map control early on by, you know, sort of outfighting the enemy outside the confines of the base. But really, you don't have, you know, it's very rare you're going to see that first round knockout in... Uh, and in an age game, there's you know there's a good amount of time to build up and start to put an army together before the battles joined in earnest. I think that you know I, honestly i I kind of wonder if that is one reason maybe why uh, those games were so successful for a number of years because I do think you know the, the 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 genre more broadly has this reputation of being you know so often you hear that um you know the way the way Tom Chick formulates it is you know if you're not if you're not doing something, you're losing. And I think a lot of people can't necessarily, you know, that, that, that's not always fun. That level of stress isn't always fun to uh, submit yourself to. But uh, Age of Mythology is the sort of game where you know, early on, you, you really do have time to think armies don't move so quickly across the map that, you know, once an army starts its push, it's not like you only have 10 seconds to think about how you're going to respond. You have maybe a minute or so to figure out, you know, you see the enemy moving, how are you going to, you know, how are you going to engage it? And I think that's, uh, you know, I I think that's an underrated aspect of, uh, why the age games were so successful. And, you know, maybe in some ways why, you know, you, you and me, uh, you and me, John, you know we're able to play them with people we love and who aren't necessarily uh, serious strategy gamers because these aren't games that are sort of tuned for uh, you know the the most skillful players uh, you know in a fight to the death from the first thirty seconds. That's not how these work.
1: can I tell you I find this game I think mean, one of the reasons that I keep coming back to is I find this almost meditative It's like this very relaxing um experience for me whereas with other games in the same genre, StarCraft, I just I find myself very tense and nervous. You know, sort of wondering like, do I need to be attacking? Do I need to be scouting more? And do I need to? How many actions per minute am I taking? It's just it's too overwhelming. Whereas with Age of Mythology in particular, I just find it this very relaxing kind of exercise. And uh, and I was actually curious about both of you guys if if you felt that that's a um, a function of just the aesthetics of this game, or if it's uh, more in the if you think it's maybe more geared towards defense than offense, or, or what your thoughts are
2: on that. I think it's just you. I'm, okay. I'm, always, I'm, always, I'm, always, I'm always afraid of the laser crocodiles coming over the next hill.
0: No, you know, I, I don't. I don't think so. I think in, in part. Just in the pace of this game, there is a, the, the what I was just talking about, you know, now that I've had a moment to think about it, I think the way I'd put it is uh, Age of Mythology in particular has a really nice sense of inertia. And what I mean by that is things don't just turn on a dime in this game, things sort of build oh, toward their yes, conclusion. Over time, and, yeah. And so it's not like when a battle starts, you immediately have this, you know, clock ticking down your head where you're like, here you go, the entire game is going to be over, you know, one way or another in the next 10 seconds of combat. That's just not how this game works. And so in some ways, it's a game where even when you're losing, you sort of feel like you have chances to salvage it and you understand why you're losing. Uh, and you also have time to really sort of try to execute your own plans and sort of get in the game. And so I actually do find it I do find it uh you know, really kind of relaxing in the way that you know, almost the way a turn based game would be. Now, admittedly, uh, you know, I'm someone who mostly is, you know, playing against uh the computer at this point, and that's you know, that just doesn't compare to what it would be like if this had a you know huge multiplayer community, uh, you know that was active, and I was trying to play against those people. I'm sure, right? You know, right then we'd be back in you know the the standard terrifying RTS, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know Thunderdome. But at least in you know playing it uh, by yourself against the computer here, uh, you do have the sense where things take time, where you can see the game taking shape, and it's not just uh, you know the sort of cryptic kinetic uh, pace. Right,
1: I also feel like you have a little bit of time to learn uh, from your mistakes. Uh, you know, Rob, you and I have watched some StarCraft together and, and I mean, you know, you, you saw. I, I was sort of befuddled at the speed of the game. Is is so uh, beyond uh, my comprehension that it, it, it. I barely have time to understand what has happened, let alone think about how is that going to impact the flow of the game going forward. Uh, you know, I'm sure you're right that we're we're probably benefiting from the fact that there are no servers for this game anymore. Uh, but I, I also feel it's a it's a design. Uh, decision that that does feel very conscious. I mean, this came out in what 2003,
0: two thousand
2: two.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, they had they had had a few years to learn from StarCraft. And it, it,
0: it, by the way, just it came out like three months after uh, Warcraft three, and hmm. I do think you've got you know some interesting ideas coming to fruition in both those games. Where you know this is this is a game that uh, really went with really distinctive faction design, uh, introduced more hero units, and Warcraft three often gets the credit for a lot of that. And in some ways, a lot of games did sort of just build from what Warcraft three did. You know, they they took you know the decisions made there. And you see them cropping up now in uh, relic games made a few years later, but I do think uh, you know again this you know this is this is you know sort of an it, it, it's sort of an example of this era where the RTS genre is is trying a lot of really exciting new ideas uh, after I think sort of emerging from uh, you know not a funk in the 90s, but certainly I sort of feel like there were sort of design conventions that were getting a little bit stale uh, by around, you know, the turn of the millennium. And then you've got this burst of creativity uh, that sort of kicks things off. And then of course, the tragedy is that, uh, you know, Ensemble doesn't have many years left after yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Troy, let's, tell me about that. Uh, tell me about those Titans. The Titan expansion, oh my God.
2: Uh, well, I mean, this is... The Titan expansion introduces... A fourth faction, and this was the idea. They're going to have the fourth faction, which is great. And I think I th- there are a lot of things. And what do they do? And they introduce what are called the Atlanteans. The Atlanteans, of course, aren't real. So they use uh, the Greek Titans uh, as the gods, as the myths. So you have you know Cronos, and you have Uranus, and you have other uh, you have Prometheus. You have all these Greek Greek other Greek deities. Uh, there in the background. Um, and they have god powers, and their god powers are rechargeable. So here you have, if not, the, if not the first rechargeable god power, you at least have one of the first ideas. Which is a god power that's on a timer. Now, some you could, fi- some you could fire more, just a limited number of times, and some were on a timer, and you could use repeatedly. Uh, so it's this kind of weird thing. Um, and it's there are a lot of problems with the way it worked for me. And um, I think the big thing is, I think part of the reason I don't didn't like it is it's was kind of offended they used more Greeks. This is going to sound stupid, but yeah, I'm kind of offended that they just they have this great successful hit game. And instead of, you know, go do something like really way out there, so let's get some Aztec gods. Let's go to some, some Chinese gods. Um, let's, I don't know, let's get some Sumerians in there. They've got us a really wacky. Let's get, you know, Gozer. And Ashtar. And <laughs> pardon? Gozer the Gozerian, really? Oh, yeah, there you go. Uh, so there's all kinds of, there, there are things they could have done, you know, to make this, you know, more, and and I know why they did gods people had heard of, because they wanted gods people had heard of. Because <laughs> um, it's easier to sell, hey, it's Prometheus than it's Astarte. But it does uh, but feel... But it, it kind of feels like a rehash. Kind of feels like there's, and the units don't feel quite right. Um, all of the units are kind of expensive because they're Atlanteans and they're super soldiers. Um, so they're all kind of heroes, as well. And the monsters are kind of lame. So it doesn't, you don't have the real you don't have the same feeling of the circle of life you have in Age of Mythology where it's you have their standard rock, paper, scissors of units, which also applies to heroes and monsters, plus you have the rock, paper, scissors of heroes, units, and monsters. So you have, you know, archers beat infantry, beat cavalry, beat archers, and then you have that same thing applied within and across circles. And this is really this neat thing in ancient mythology, which kind of breaks down once the Atlanteans are introduced, because you have this, you have units, and then you have specialized counter units you can build. So it gets really complicated. Um, and this is, so it doesn't have that elegance. So it's lame, it's unoriginal, um, it's more complicated you need specialized barracks to build counter units or some stupid thing. It introduces this titan endgame where you build a titan gate, and then the titans beat each other like rock'em, sock'em gods, and the winner gets to trash the other guy's base.
1: And, and, and it, becomes, it, it becomes even more uh, extreme in the cleanup aspect. I mean, once you build a titan, it's over. Oh, and, and by the way, Troy, I don't know if you've noticed this with the Titans, but uh, my my wife pointed this out to me today uh, when defending her her bullshit uh, evaluation. She said even though the Titans are these giant continent-spanning monsters, they apparently can't step over a river, so they can't cross water, uh, which is which is just kind of funny. So you put them on a boat. You can't put them on a boat. No, that's, you can't build a boat big enough to fit them. But you, no, you, they they can't cross water. So if if uh, you happen to be across the river from your opponent, they're useless. Um, well, no, but,
2: no, uh, not, not you cross the river and then build your gate there. Yeah, right,
1: right. So, uh, you know, I think um, Troy's point is very well taken about the Atlanteans feeling like a retread of the Greeks, uh, particularly because of something that uh, that I think, uh, uh, Troy, that you had said earlier, which was that the, the three main factions, right, the, it goes from the Greeks to the Egyptians to the Norse, and you're sort of building this complexity of play style as you go along, right? You, you, it sort of gets progressively weirder and um, encourages more risk-taking. It feels like the Atlanteans regressed a little bit in that uh, you know, you're first of all, as as Troy said, they're really not differentiated enough from the Greeks to be meaningful, uh, it, both either in terms of aesthetics or in, in powers. Um, but the the thing that it I think it falls a little flat on is it, it doesn't really encourage a different play style than any of the other factions, which it kind of doesn't add anything.
2: And the whole rechargeable or or multiple fire god powers. It kind of lose their specialness, right? It's like, well, I can just if I waste use it, use it again. Yeah, just well, use it better next time. No, that's not the point. The point is, you know, these are, these are, these are valuable. You know, you can't call on the gods to bail you out over and over again. You do that, the gods get angry. Um, and I, I forget how did the Atlanteans build faith again? Oh, that's a,
1: a really good question. I, I, you do have to build a temple. Uh, I think it. I think the temple may just generate favor over time.
2: Which is just stupid and lame.
0: Favor is gained from town centers. The more completed town centers a player owns, the faster they will earn favor. That's from the wiki.
2: Mm. Well, okay. that's so. That's just Fuck it's essentially that. the same thing.
1: I mean, you just yeah.
2: So it's even yeah, so, 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 more so, passive. It's it's it's, subtle, it's like the Egyptians. You build it and it'll come. But you start with a town center anyway. So
0: lame. Yeah, that- Not good. It's It it is a problem when you you know. It's I do I do think a lot of RTS uh, a lot of strategy developers have sort of struggled with this problem of you know when you create a really tight balanced game it can be tough to sort of wedge someone else in there because it's almost like you're almost like retconning your design at that point because the entire thing is exactly what you're doing yeah yeah because the entire thing was sort of designed for these you know this group of core units and factions to balance each other and work really, you know, interesting ways together. Uh, and now you're like, Oh, well, here's, you know, here's, you forgot about these guys. Uh, and that, that can be, that can be a really impossible challenge. Uh, and yet there, and yet the hunger for new content remains. Uh, I, I think Relic certainly struggled with that with, uh, you know, the the longer the Warhammer games have gone on, mm-hmm. is that you just have to keep you just have to keep adding more units because everyone has their pet faction, but at some point it's like you're 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 starting to have to you know dig deeper uh, to find ways to distinguish these factions in interesting ways.
2: Yeah, I mean, in spite of that, I mean, it it doesn't take away from Age of Myth. It's not bad enough that it ruins Age of Mythology, and then that's something well, to be said for it.
0: I don't install it, so I yeah, it's as optional as can be.
2: Yeah. I think I have installed it. I'm not sure.
0: But that's, that's one last thing I actually wanted to bring up is, uh, as far as I know, the only way to get this game, you have to get a physical copy. Yes, you do. Yep.
2: yep. I mean, this is a problem with a lot of games uh, from Microsoft in this era. Um, they're just not available digitally, and you can't get um, Rise of Nations, for example, as well.
0: Which I, I just uh, again, I find that I find this stuff just absolutely baffling. It's just it makes no sense to me whatsoever. It is you know, they they run just fine. The the backwards compatibility oh, yeah. issue doesn't exist. This thing, you've no. got the disc, yep. it runs beautifully. And yep. even though it might not have like full modern resolution, it still looks pretty damn good on my monitor, so that's not an obstacle either. So really it's just make this thing available and yet it's just in it's just in this black hole that is uh Microsoft.
1: Is, is that a common thing that, that you've experienced before with uh, particularly Microsoft Studios games, that they just refuse to uh, re-release this stuff in digital format on Steam or good old games or something?
2: It's just not a priority for them, I think.
0: Yeah, but its I don't know. It's it's so bizarre, though, because I don't think it's a priority for anybody, really. I don't think EA really gives a shit if Crusader No Remorse is available on good old games or not, and yet they make it available because it's, you know, why not? Uh, Make a
1: couple bucks, yeah,
0: why not? Right, and, and these games, actually, I do think are probably more... More valuable uh, commercially today than a lot of than a lot of uh, you know older games, uh, because these these really do hold up so beautifully, and yet for whatever reason Microsoft uh, you know does nothing with them. I've always sort of suspected that, you know, for much the same reason that uh, Games for Windows Live has always just been this perennial piece of shit. I, I think Microsoft is a company that is always uh, you know you know it, it's sort of like me it's always overbooked and overcommitted it always has all these great intentions and i, I kind of always feel that microsoft you know in, you know thinks that at some point they are going to do something along these lines like don't release this stuff until we can release it on our terms wait until gfw is you know like you know a good rival for steam or something we've got a good audience there uh, and we'll just hang on to it until that day comes but of course it's never enough of a priority to ever bring that in, you know to fruition and so mm-hmm. these games mm-hmm. just Sort of, uh, you know, sit there in limbo, and you know, you have to go to eBay and Amazon and buy people's dusty old copies, and uh, you know, hope you don't hope you don't get ripped off, which is you know just an absolute shame, because you know this is uh, when I think about it, I, I, this is probably one of my top five RTS games of all time. I, I have a hard time naming uh, you know five others that I'd prefer to it. Yeah, certainly up
2: there for me, and I do encourage any listeners um, to really track down uh, Age Authology if you can, if you don't already know. If you, if you listen to the show, uh, you probably own it. Uh, if you don't, um, if you're too young to get it at the time, please look for it um, somewhere. It is really one of the, I think, most elegant designs. I mean, for, it's just a very sophisticated design when you think about it, um, it's just how all the circles fit so neatly and tightly uh, and play so well and uh, so intuitively. Um, it's a really a nice, well-oiled machine. It feels really effortless, too. I'm sure
1: it wasn't, but it feels very effortless.
2: Well, I'm sure it took them forever to get this thing balanced right, um, right. and to figure out how the circles all mixed. Um, and you can still see a few little rough edges here and there um, with some of the uh, monsters, especially, but uh, uh, some of them just don't seem to be quite that useful to me. Um, but it's, but in general, it's just—I mean, it's—I think it is Ensemble's best game.
0: Buyer beware, by the way. So I own two copies. One I got from a you know, some big box store, I think, you know, where they keep the value software, whatever. And it was just a tiny little CD case. But this tiny little CD case had a product key in it. Uh, and so you, you got the full game and a product key. Now, what I bought a few years later, uh, because that version had gone uh, by the wayside, I bought a Best Buy BestBuyGames.com uh, version of Age of Empires, which I think was sort of put out maybe by ValueSoft. Uh, I'm not sure. But so I, I go to install it today and I open it up. And there is no CD key inside this thing. Uh, I don't. It, maybe it was on a piece of paper uh, that I lost. But you know, just be careful uh, about that. About that uh, Best Buy Games version of Age of Mythology, which you, which you can find out there, because you know if if you don't sew, if you don't have the product key, sort of like printed in the box somewhere, uh, you're basically uh, you know you, you you're you're living real dangerously. Uh, at that point.
1: Well, that's just another argument for getting in on good old games. I mean, what the hell's a CD key? Come
0: on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Try. I did want to ask you, because I know that you, uh, I think for Crispy Gamer, you wrote kind of a, um, you know, a... a, a uh, memento mori uh, for ensemble after it was all over the way I, I sort of remember this is age of mythology kind of seems like maybe uh, the last game where re- really ensemble had a totally free hand to do what they want and then you got age of empires 3 and then the halo game uh and i'm just curious you know what were the what were the politics you know going on behind the scenes here why wasn't there another age of mythology
2: there really wasn't They didn't say a whole lot about that, but generally, this is something that happens with Ensemble and happens with a lot of other studios. Is when you have a publisher, um, they want you're generally working on a whole lot of projects um, at once. There's you have a lot of ideas, Uh, a lot of things you want to get made, but your publisher wants the franchise, and the franchise was Age of Empires. Um, So they would take people from other titles and say, I'm sorry, you're not working on that anymore. Uh, Stuff that was never announced. Um, I don't even give me any titles for these games. And uh, so Age of Empires was just the number one priority (coughs) for... um, uh, Microsoft from Ensemble. They wanted Age of Empires.
0: And so even a closely related spinoff like even Age, mythology Age of Mythology?
2: I get the sense that Age of Mythology wasn't as big a game as... A, as Wasn't a success that Microsoft had hoped it would be. Right. Uh, certainly wasn't as big as... Because the big problem, and they explained this to me um, in the interview, as they all said, this is, look, Age of Kings was just ridiculously successful. I mean, it was one of, and it remains one of the best-selling real-time strategy games ever. Everyone played Age of Empires 2. Everybody played Age of Kings. It was the the big online multiplayer RTS before StarCraft. Even coincidental with StarCraft. I mean, there were Age of Empires players and there were StarCraft players. And it was a huge, huge online scene for that. Um, And there was a sense that the next game would sell even more. And of course, you just can't sell more uh, right. than that. You just there's just no chance, no chance that the next game would sell as much as Age of Kings did, because that came along just at the right time. Um, and this is something that a lot of publishers, I don't think, quite understood then. I'm not sure all of them understand now. Is a lot of a game success is, quince- is coincidental, uh, depending on you know what is going on in the hardware scene? Um, is there a new operating system that is coming out around the... Say, it's like Windows 95, the new big thing? Oh, great, we have a new game that looks great on Windows 95. And that actually helps, you know, move product, uh, weirdly enough. So there's... Is there... Does a multiplayer scene build up in universities and for God knows what reason? I mean, who knows why StarCraft took off uh, and other RTSs didn't? Who knows why of Empires took off uh, in other words, it didn't. But Age of Mythology did not have those kinds of sales. Uh, so Microsoft, I think, was just not all that keen on having Age of Mythology 2. So they're on to Age of Mythologies 3, uh, which, and the result of and that final version, was actually quite a bit scaled down from the original Age of Empires 3 design, if they read some of the previews and the features that did not make it in. Um, so even that was cut back. So there was, I mean, Ensemble made RTSs at a time when the RTS was kind of slipping after Age of Mythology. The RTS was not a dying genre, but the base-building RTS, I mean, it's, it was drifting down. It was kind of fading. And right now it's really on life support, the base-building RTS. How many are there? Um, I would love to see another Age of Mythology, uh, if not from Ensemble, from somebody. I, I think there really is a need for more games that have this kind of sensibility games that are that take their settings seriously but don't take themselves seriously if that makes sense
1: i I mean i've i i've got to say that that the dawn of war games have, have got to be the spiritual successor on that level
2: yeah yeah and they're they have they have that relic you know Zone control uh, thing going on. I really kind of miss the whole base. You know, you, you build a base and you come out of the base, and your armies meet in the middle, and they whack each other. You don't really have that sort of um, thing as much anymore. Um, and that's except for StarCraft
0: this is a sort of frustrating thing about games is that ideas sort of come in waves and there's sort of this bandwagoning where I remember when Dawn of War came out, I was absolutely thrilled to see the control point point mechanics and the way it was very much like sort of a real-time war game with a real like minimum of base building and uh, economic management. I really loved that. And then it sort of seemed like that was every freaking RTS. And, uh, you know, the the model that had dominated prior to that uh, had suddenly completely disappeared. And, And so uh, I think this is a recurring problem in games where it's it's very hard to have this, you know, sort of healthy balance of ideas. Instead, you get this really frustrating, everyone like, you know, everyone's sort of chasing the dragon.
2: Yeah, I mean, if anyone's out there building another Age of Mythology and they need somebody to consult on it, boy, I have <laughs> lots of ideas. I have lots of ideas, you know.
0: Well, that about uh, does it for our topic. I want to thank you guys for a really fun and fascinating discussion of, uh, you know, one of of our favorite RTSs. And, uh, you know, if you can dig up a copy, I highly recommend you do so because you will be well rewarded. Uh, I still think it, you know, it it holds up brilliantly. So uh, thanks to you guys for, uh, you know, making time to talk to me tonight. Uh, As always, our thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes, for putting this together. And uh, we'll be back next week with... I'm sure, some fascinating topic uh, to be determined. Uh, anyway, I hope you all have a good holiday holiday weekend, and uh, see you next week. Bye,
1: everyone. Good night.